Good morning. My name is Steve Allen, and I am an assistant pastor here. I also work full-time outside of the church, and um, especially if you're new here, I want to, I just appreciate you being here. Um, In a lot of ways, that's all of our stories to some degree, uh, unless you grew up never not knowing a day where you ventured into church settings, uh, which is probably some of you, but um, that wasn't the case for me. Um, I didn't grow up in any sort of church setting, and and even reading scriptures or singing songs uh, was a foreign experience for me. I was glad there was a uh, clock at the back of the room. Um, however, I think the pastor always saw me looking back at it. I was always stretching my head around, when is this going to be over? And so uh, you're not alone if that's you this, <laughs> this morning. Um, and I'll run about 30 minutes. I'll run my mouth for about 30 minutes. Um, but hopefully describing to you what I would call uh, an epic meal that God gives to his people. It's epic in its scope. Um, what it, its meaning truly is, um, it can seem a little bit, um, well, I don't want to assume what you'll hear when you hear about the Passover, but it's not language we typically use. So it might seem um, kind of foreign to you or out of your normal, ordinary life, but you'll see that there are elements in here that, that you know, we actually do in our life. We embody all the time. Uh, it's a liturgy. Uh, really, that God gives his people, a feast, a ceremony. Um, And we do rituals all the time. And the rituals that you do every day actually tells us a lot about who you are and what your life is about, for good or for for bad, in my case, uh, on some of the things. Um, But it tells you everything about who you are. And so let's take a look inside of the, the Passover here. Uh, Learn from it. Uh, Try to listen with new ears, not assuming you understand what everything means. We're going to ask some questions of the text and have it answer us. Um, Again, if there's anything in here that you're still um, wondering about, I'd love to uh, grab coffee with you sometime and and talk about those things. But Exodus 12 is what we'll look at. I'm going to read 1 through 14. I'm going to refer to uh, the rest of the passage as well. I would encourage you to go back and listen to it. Uh, Just listen as I read and let these scriptures kind of roll over you. Uh, Let your interest be, be, uh, uh, let let your interest um, be piqued. Is that the word, picked? What is the word? P-I-Q? Thanks. All right. Well, let it do that. Exodus 12. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, This month shall be for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. Tell all the congregation of Israel that on the tenth day of this month every man shall take a lamb according to their father's houses, a lamb for a household. And if the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his nearest neighbor shall take according to the number of persons. According to what each can eat, you shall make your count for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats, and you shall keep it until the 14th day of this month, when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. Then they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two 
two doorposts and the lintel of the houses in which they eat it. They shall eat the flesh that night. Roasted on the fire with unleavened bread and bitter herbs, they shall eat it. Do not eat any of it raw or boiled in water, but roasted, its head with its legs and its inner parts. You shall let none of it remain until the morning. Anything that remains until the morning you shall burn. In this manner you shall eat it, with your belt fastened, your sandals on your feet and your staff in your hand. And you shall eat it in haste. It's the Lord's Passover. For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and on all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are, and when I see the blood, I will pass over you, and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt." This day shall be for you a memorial day, and you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord throughout your generations. As a statute forever, you shall keep it as a feast. Let's pray. Ask for God's help. Uh, Father, for new eyes to see this passage in ways that we didn't think would be possible, that you would soften our hearts, make our steps a little lighter, uh, knowing that you've gone to battle for us. And um, we can rest in that. Uh, Would you help us mine out the wisdom in this passage in Christ's name? Amen. A lot is going on in this passage. Uh, Clearly don't have all the time to to walk through verse by verse. Um, I would encourage you to go back and read this if if further questions come up. There have been plenty of commentaries written on these matters. And um, um, I, I just wanted to point out, um, again, in the beginning, I said, when we listen to passages like this, you know, it, it, it just seems completely foreign to us. And part of it is because of the different terminology that's being used, that's thrown around. And you sometimes hear it at Christmas and Easter and it's sort of ceremonial language. Um, again, God gave a gift to the people, a ritual, a feast to enact for the, the coming, to commemorate for the coming generations. And I look around us today and I say, are we so different from the people of God? I mean, yeah, we're not taking animals out. We don't need to in this worship service because of what Christ has done on our behalf once for all. Um, But we have all kinds of rituals to commemorate life. Bridal showers that we forgot to announce. Uh, Right, Ashlyn? You're not Ashlyn. You're Ashlyn. Yeah, yeah. So sorry. You You were young when I started. Okay. She's not young anymore. Um, we commemorate things, right? I love this time of year because that's exactly what we do in things like Thanksgiving. We take a moment. Um, we consider. Uh, for us, we just try not to burn the turkey. Um, and yeah, thanks. And um, I love Halloween. I don't know if I love Halloween, but I like it that my son loves Halloween. And the rituals that he has around Halloween... I don't know, like putting a big spider on our door, for example, to commemorate um, what it is. But I think we can pass by things like Halloween um, and and just look at it as a way to go to strangers' house to get their candy from them. Um, But there's a lot going on in these rituals, these ceremonies, these holidays, right? Um, Think about the stories that are being told. you know, our kids grow, and adults too, um, put on costumes. 
Um, some adults pregame before they go out. There's rituals that are going on. What are the stories, though, that are being captured? I think of the best-selling costumes from the 50s on when things were really, really commercialized. And what, what are the basic themes you see? There's a variety of things, but the best-selling costumes are villains, heroes. It's Superwoman. It's Spider-Man. It's Ted Lasso. It's Barbie uh, this year. Sort of these, these sort of representations of who, maybe who we want to, or some of the characteristics we'd like to embody. Um, for, for little kids, especially ages two to nine. Um, I think when Jesus says, be like one of these, I think he doesn't necessarily mean that we should just have a bunch of fun and, and lay down in a pew on a, on a church Sunday. Though that's part of it. He does like that. Relax, rest. But I think he says, come by the world honestly. In other words, see what's in the world. Don't overlook it. There's things happening in the world. And the, and the, and the kids tell those stories uh, during Halloween. Uh, tell of what's happening in the world with evil versus good. And when you look around, you see these things too, right? They tell what they would like to become in the midst of such evil and violence, right? They want to they be heroic. They want to do something bigger than themselves. Or they want to believe that there's something outside of themselves that's going to do something about the harm that they're facing. And I think we believe the same thing, right? Whether you're two years old or 45, like me, you intuitively know that there's got to be something else. This is what you think. When God sets up a meal, that's what he's trying to tell the people to do. He gives them another ritual, a liturgy to participate in, an event to let unfold. It becomes the embodied story of the people of God for the rest of their lives, for statute forever, culminating in the story that we celebrate every week, at Easter especially. Right? The story of Christ on a cross for Christians or for, for the world to see. But the wild thing to me is this in this story. You see, God gives them a story in anticipation of what's to come. It's not like the thing happened, he delivered, and now we party. He's like, no, throw a party right now. Right now, throw a party. It's like he promises, it's of what's to come, right? He promises, and then he backs up his promise. It's like any other gods in Egypt. And they're a part of the story of that which gets crushed in this story. But God says, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to promise to deliver you and judge and, 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 have execute, and execute the gods of Egypt. But I want you to have a party to commemorate that. That's just wild. And it's sort of in a small way, and I know that legend, Larry the Legend Bird is not God. But if you look at these 51-second clips of him, uh, back in the day, if you're a sports person, if you're not, think of your favorite chess person who might do this, talk trash, and then back it up. Or book reader, I don't know what else is out there. Art maker. But Larry, he, you see him in these videos looking into the crowd, 
and he's just talking smack or something. You don't know what he's doing. And then all of a sudden he takes the ball and he shoots it and makes it. Uh, you see one of Xavier McDaniel. I don't know these people. I just watched the videos. Uh, who's guarding him. And, and Larry says, you know, says something to him. You see, and then he makes the shot. Well, what was he doing? He was calling his shot. And then he backed it up. Of course, we're only seeing the videos of the ones that he backed up. God's different in that way. God's promises always come to fulfillment. If you're unsure about anything else in the world, any of the parts of your life you're uncertain about, the chaos that might be happening if you're in a household that's going through harsh realities right now, you can be sure of this. If God promises to be with you, he backs it up. And he commemorates it in a feast, the Passover, which becomes the feast of all feasts that culminates in the Lord's Supper. And so I want to look at this feast together uh, for for a few moments. I want to see the nature of it, like what it is, what's in it, and then what it points to, and then how we can embrace it, how it becomes our feast in a way. So first, the nature of the Passover. Um, first, I noticed, that, I noticed that there's like a time orientation, as we just discussed, a time orientation to it. There's a past, present, and futureness to God's feasts. So the past you see in verse 2 and verse 14, uh, or the future rather you see in verse 2 and 14. This month, which is a present idea, shall be. So that sh- this shall be a statute forever kind of idea is present and future. You're commemorating something in the present that remembers something that's going to happen and will be the past, anticipating future further deliverances. So what is he doing in this time orientation piece? What's he doing? And to answer that, I wonder, I want us to take a moment and wonder what it would be like to be in that present tense. If it's just a meal about the past, how would that really fortify you in the present? If it's just a meal about thinking about the future, how would that really, it's got to be all three. God's got to be this omnipresent person, like like outside of our space-time continuum. And Matt would love to talk about what that actually means, because I don't know for sure. But he is not linear like you and me. Dynamic. He's working on all three phases, on all aspects of time. And I need to know that because when I'm going through something really harsh in a moment, if you tell me he's going to do something in the future, that doesn't always help, right? That doesn't calm my heart. If you tell, him, tell me that he did something in the past that, where he delivered someone from their harsh realities, that doesn't always help. I need to know that he's present with me in the present that he's about doing something now. I love this this time orientation piece because God, it's such a grace. Um, If we can see it, if we have eyes to see it, but we hurry through things so much. We hurry through things, especially painful things. Um, You know, it's like touching fire, right? You don't want to sit there and touch the fire, of course. Uh, But you can't just hurry through, especially, particularly painful things. Um, When my daughter Amelia passed away, she died in uh, 2016. It was the most painful thing I'd ever experienced in my life, even more painful than the four rounds of chemo she went through at age seven months. 
And we were, we were in the hospital room, and we're about to, um, you know, the, the, we're saying our final goodbyes. And I'm sorry if this causes triggers anyone, um, but I mean, it's just real. I'm just honestly talking about things and events that happen. And you know what, what we did? And, and, and I, kudos to like um, Grace Chapel uh, members. They're like um, Crystal Davey, who's a worship leader over at Grace Chapel. She said, you know what we need to do is we need to throw a party and have gold balloons, and silver balloons, and invite all the staff at the hospital to come. And then she, she and a band played music. And that is, that's, that's something in the present. That wasn't just acting like nothing wrong was happening. We all knew what was happening. And, 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 you know, and Amelia said, I'm ready to be with Christ. I'm ready. This body has failed me. So, yeah, sadness, profound sadness. But for a moment in the present, we were able to receive, we were able to feast and understand that God is present with us in a way that we never would have had we not stopped and beheld. He says, stay put if you face harsh realities. Don't move too quickly. Stay in there. But the second part of it is you can't do it on your own, right? Many of us, when we face um, hard things or battles, we want to isolate. That's a common Nebraskan thing. It's like avoid, right? Or get to working. Let's get hard and avoid it by working harder um, and building something uh, so we don't have to deal with the hard things. And part of it is we just don't think anyone understands or like there's no one who could walk through that with us. And, And what God does, he makes this a completely communal feast. He says, do this in community, right? He says, the Lord says, tell the congregation about this statute I'm about to institute. And if you don't have a lamb, or if you don't have enough people in your household, if you're, if you're a single person, or if you have a roommate, or, but you have a small household, you know what? Go to your neighbor's house. Add up people. Create a community. You know why? Because you're made for community. You need to do this in community, because if you cease to believe that God would deliver, you need that person to tell you and believe for you. Right to speak those words of truth and promises to your heart. We need a community. Without a community, we lose the full meaning and purpose of the meal, of the feast. And when we're alone, we tend to hide. Our imagination runs wild. We start to lose our minds. We avoid. This idea of community is so important for the Old Testament people of God. Um, I read a little bit. Actually, I heard about um, the Midrash, which is an inter- Jewish interpretation of the Old Testament, the Midrash. And for fun, or if you're a nerd, you can go back and read the Midrash. It's actually pretty uh, enlightening. Um, but the Midrash, this uh, Old Testament interpretation, comments on what Adam might have felt in those first days of being created. We don't often think about this, but he's the first human and he experienced his first solstice, his spring solstice. And, and this is what the interpretation wrote. And I'll, I'll read it. When Adam saw the days beginning to get shorter, he said, woe is me. He's in the presence of God in the garden. 
and he is freaking out. They didn't say that. I said that. (laughs) They're more sophisticated than me. Perhaps the world, he says, this is what they're thinking he says, perhaps the world is returning to chaos and confusion. Adam's, he's, he's wailing. He screams, he's confused. He looks into the abyss and he feels totally alone and in despair. He's never seen a darkness like this one. And, and, and it threatens to throw him back into primordial chaos in which the world emerged. Adam, yes, he needed God, and he needed Eve, not to do some mission, though that's coming, but it's because he felt alone in the world. He was, he felt alone, even with God present. And the Hebrews here in this passage needed to know that even though the darkness and evil surrounds them at the solstice, they're not alone in the chaos You keep the feast together. And we fast forward today, and that's how we keep the Lord's Supper. We wait. We do it. We take our time. We come up. We sing songs together. We take the Lord's Supper. The final component of this Passover is that it's a feast. It's a meal. It's not just a ceremony or some rote ritual that they do, but it's it's something that they're going to enjoy and delight in. Um, In verse 8, They shall eat the animal that night. Imagine what that would smell like, roasting on a fire. And if you're not a meat eater, I'm I'm sorry. But but even non-meat eaters that I know, some of my friends still love that smell of roasted. That roasting, the smoker going. They would have had unleavened bread with bitter herbs. Likely the bread was dipped in the fat of the animal. All the senses going, just going haywire here. Verse 11, it says, In this manner you shall eat it in haste, with your belt on, your sandals on your feet. What's going on with all this? It's because they didn't have time to dally. <laughs> you know, there, was, there were true battles going on in life. But this, is, this, this description here is what Jesus draws from. I mean, Jesus was with God, and Jesus was God, right? Uh, but the things you see instituted in the Lord's Supper is what you hear here, um, and that he draws from, Paul draws from this. And basically what God is saying when he makes this meal is to, that you need to remember the smells, the sights, and the sounds of this moment forever, because your mind will forget what I've done, but your body never will. Something, you'll be walking along, you'll smell something, you'll remember God. It's what David writes about in the Psalms when he says, look, I'm groaning, my body hurts, I'm beyond the point of despair, but I remember this, I remember the temple where God resides in the Old Testament, and the smells and the bells and the whistles. My body remembers, and I I take heart. My heart is a little bit lighter. The Passover was to be a multi-sensory feast held at twilight. Imagine that. Perfect night with all the stars, full moon in springtime. And for a moment, the people would have been satisfied, filled with wonder, a little bit lighter. It shows us the nature of the Passover. There's a time orientation to it. There's a community as its context. And there's a feast. But what does it all point to? 
What does it all point to? That's the next thing we'll look at. I think ultimately it points to God's powerful presence with his people. God's powerful presence with his people. Verse 11, the Lord says this, It's the Lord's Passover. Why? For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn of the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And on all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. And no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. Now, a little recap. The people are about to leave Egypt and go into the promised land. They would have been disoriented to the world that God created. And I think that when Genesis comes to and all the things written down about Genesis... Remember, it's in a community of people who were disoriented. And that's why they, go, they take painstaking labor to describe what the days were like when it was created. Why? Because they didn't have a sense of time. They were enslaved people where time wasn't a thing. They just had to work and from sun, sun up to sundown and probably way more than we think. And here they are about to go into the promised land. They will still have to face face battles, and Pharaoh's heart is hardened. He won't let them go, despite all the warnings that came in the first several plagues. Because Pharaoh's heart was hardened. If he loses the Israelites, his economy will crash. That's all they were, commodities. A final warning is given to Pharaoh that they're going to lose their firstborn. He still refuses. Pharaoh fails to believe God's promises and judgment. And his, his gods, he and his household, his gods, will be, all be executed for it. They refuse to listen. The Israelites are having a meal. The details of the meal are what points us to, to the meaning of the meal. An unblemished lamb or goat. I learned that sacrificing a young animal at this time was a common ritual among the peoples and agrarian societies during springtime. So this would have been a normal function. Uh, the people of God would have had a different, different purpose to it. Uh, but the shepherds at the time believed in spiritual realities of good and evil in the world, like most of the world believes outside of the U.S. Uh, sometimes we forget about that in Lincoln, Nebraska. There's, there's a bigger story going on, right? There truly are Good, there it truly is good and evil. This was a family feast, as outlined here in Exodus 12. It would have felt similar to the Israelites. The difference are in the detailed instructions. They're to take and smear the blood on the doorpost to cover houses. The sacrificial animal has this important function here. It's to protect those within the house from some power outside of the house. And it acts like a reinforced, closed door. And, and by the way, the meaning isn't a one-for-one one, one one for us today. The Holy Spirit is everywhere protecting us. But they would do this to protect and protect themselves. That animal needed to be, that the animal needed to be pure and the blood sprinkled meant that this event was not only for their protection, but it also was to transform the to consecrate the people in some spiritual way. 
They were being purified through this event. They were being made holy. And holiness doesn't mean you're sinless or complete, but it means being set apart. Set apart for God and his purposes and protection. That's the lamb. That's what it represents. That's what the blood represents. The unleavened bread, they were leaving in haste. They didn't have time to bake in the yeast for their journey. They were to wear their belts and sandals. They were to get ready for their deliverance. The bitter herbs would remind them of the bitter experiences of slavery. Ultimately, what's happening in the Passover meal is that the people are preaching to their own hearts and to one another and to the watching world that God is present with them. That God, number one, provides a ransom from death. What is the judgment of sin upon the world? The judgment of sin or the consequence of sin is death. Right? And he is preparing a way out for the people of God, a ransom. Now that ransom is religious, sounds religious. I had my car impounded and Nissan stands with a fist. And it was impounded when I was a college student because I parked in, I tried to get by with parking in places that I, I didn't have any money to, to pay for parking. Um, so I'm out uh, outside of my fraternity. It'll be unnamed in case anyone, um, I just don't want to be a bad representation of SIGEP fraternity. <laughs> I had the Nissan stands in an emergency vehicle parking spot and it got impounded. And so I had to walk across campus to go to the impound. Some of you know what this is like. And figure out where this place was. I walked, I walked a mile and a half to this place. And above the door it says, you know, redeem your car here. And for a moment, I'm, I kid you not, it was like 87 bucks. And I said, I don't know if it's worth that. Literally, I don't know if it would have been worth that. Uh, but I didn't have any other means to get around. So I redeemed my car. 87 bucks. It was the last of my money. Sacrificed everything. has nothing to do with the Passover. It has everything to do with the idea of ransom, redeeming something. That's just a small glimpse. God provides a ransom from death. It's the blood smeared. He over. He passes over. But the blood smeared is also something more. It's purifying the house. So there's a ceremonial piece to the meal. Third, eating the meat and unleavened bread sets them apart. It tells them that they believe in God. That they believe what he says. You, you, all you need for your journey is sandals, a belt, a staff, and the meal that I'm going to provide. Believe me. You don't need anything more. You just need my presence. And so you're going to walk with me. So we get to the final point. What does this mean for us? What are we to take from this? We've had some ideas along the way. But how does this story relate to our story as we get lost in some of the ceremonies and rituals and things that we don't do today? And if you have a sensitive spirit like me, you notice that the firstborns of Egypt are being killed in order to, to ransom and redeem or save people, to save people who embrace faith in Yahweh? How do we reconcile these things? And I'm not sure that we can fully, because we only know in part everything that's going on. 
but I'll do my best to, to scratch at it a little bit. In the Old Testament, what we've seen so far, and, and, and know that there was a particular context that these things are written in, many of which we can draw from, right? But it's not a one-for-one historical narrative or a one-for-one like moral instruction piece that we're supposed to go and do likewise, right? It's, it's telling a story. And, it's, and, and we are a part of the story too, right? We're in, in between resurrection and, and the ultimate consummation of all things, the ultimate healing of the earth. That's where we are at in this context. There's a context back here as well. What you see in the Old Testament as it's being written and, and the events are, are kind of unfolded are these places where God executes his judgment. Like it's an ultimate judgment, upon evil and sin in the world. And he doesn't do it in full. Why? He wants to spare people. He wants to give them time to come to know him and embrace him by faith, to give up their evil way and to embrace life, to give up curses and to live on the road of, of blessing and abundant life. That's why he takes his time. But there are points in time, a poignant times, where he executes his judgment upon evil. Adam and Eve, they rebel. There's consequences in the world. Sin, death, destruction, disease. Noah, a big flood, confronts evil, crushes evil. And I know there are individual faces in that evil, so I'm not trying to avoid that conversation, which is a longer conversation that we can talk about a point, but I'm just talking about categorically what's happening in the world, in the land. Noah, Abraham, Sodom, Gomorrah, right? And what you have here is a Pharaoh that's acting like God and refusing to listen to God of the universe and becomes the face of evil. And so now we have a judgment that's being executed on evil and sin. The problem, is, and, and, and some of you know what evil's like in the world, right? Um, if you're from households that had that kind of thing, violence or abuse, you've experienced it in your life. Or if you're someone who's looked into someone else's eyes, who's, in, who's got this deeper spell of addiction. I'm taking classes in counseling. I'm a, a master in counseling. And so if I say things that are counseling-oriented, it's just because I can't always distinguish between the two. But the spell of addiction... The problem isn't the person, it's, it's, or their poor decisions. It, it, it's, it, it's, it's the addiction itself, right? It's the sin and evil that, that comes up and takes over. It, it, it's good things turned into ultimate things that were never meant to be ultimate things. It has a power and a spell over it. And we want those things to be get, to got, we want to get rid of those things, Right? Because sin and evil crouches at the door, Genesis 4, 4, 7. Its desire is to have you, to steal your joy, to make you despair. And so in the face of Pharaoh, we actually get to see a little bit behind the curtain at the real battle that's going on, the battle for souls, the battle for your life. And don't we want that evil to be judged? And for judgments to be executed against that evil, to be stopped in its way, we do. You do. And so the Passover does just that. It's going to look back at God's deliverance. 
but it also is going to look forward. Because judgment is not executed in a full way. Not all evil stopped. Not all violence stopped. Don't just look outside in the world to see what's happening, but look inside. Look at my own heart to know that judgment is not executed fully by the grace of God. Because none of us could stand. None of us could stand if we had to. This looks forward to an ultimate deliverance, however. This feast in Exodus commemorates just a day while the Passover looks for all time. The animal's blood was a temporary fix. It needed something deeper. It needed a person, a perfect substitute for humans, a human substitute, pure in heart. It had to be divine. It had to be a God-man. And we see a picture of this lamb, this God-man, in Daniel 7, if you fast forward from this story, you see Daniel 7. There's, and that's where you really see um, the curtains pulled back and evil in the form of four beasts. And these beasts have like multiple heads and ribs in their teeth. And it's, it's great, actually, Halloween stuff to look at, uh, Rhodes, uh, with a parent, please, so you can talk about it. But it's, just, it's, it's a scene of evil and, and good uh, battling. What's going to happen in the world? And how do we not become just followers of evil that gets crushed and judged against? Well, you see the, this one like the Ancient of Days in Daniel 7. He's also called the son, the lamb, the ultimate lamb, the son of God. And that's what Matthew 1 ushers in that lamb of God. And John talks about it a lot in his gospel there is one who's perfect in every way, the pure substitute, the pure lamb, who ultimately crushes Satan, punches, not only punches him in the mouth, but crushes his head beneath his foot as the ultimate king. But he first had to face judgment because, right, the consequences of sin is death and judgment. And that's what we look forward to on the cross Christ does just that on the cross. When God looks at Christ on the cross, right, he saw him as his beloved son, but all of a sudden something happens, you see a switch, and Jesus cries out like Adam in the first days. Like, oh my gosh, woe to me, he says. Why have you forsaken me? You brought me into this world to tend a garden, man. It's dark. Jesus had to face ultimate darkness, and he cries. He wails in fear. And I think what God saw at the cross is the face of evil in in Christ because of the consequences of sin, my sin, our sin, were laid upon him, and he was crushed for our iniquities. The face of evil was on the cross. And you know why? You know what happens after that? He goes through the other side. He gets crushed. But he doesn't end up forever dying. He gets raised. He makes it through to the other side where there's new life. And that's what it truly means to be a Christian is that that story becomes your story. You know, if you can see all the elements or components of the story, it may be hard to embrace Christ in faith. I get that. It took me a while. But once you do, it opens up everything 
It opens up your understanding about the world in ways that you never thought were possible. It makes sense of the world. It makes sense of our deepest longings, which are we want to belong to something beyond the grave where there is no more death, no more destruction, no more disease, no more cancer, right? No more sin sickness in me. No more failures. No more ways we disappoint people. No more insecurities that I have. Is there a place like that? The Lord's Supper says, yes, there is. As, this, as we await the Savior to come again. So if you're not a Christian person this morning and, and you're thinking through things, I, I ask you to just consider the supper, consider the things talked about in Exodus 12. There are hard things in there as well, um, challenging things to think about. But ultimately, where's your rest going to be found? Is it in yourself, working a bit harder? I even think about for Christian people, is that where you rest? Like looking better for your partner, your spouse? Looking better for your roommates or for your uh, employers? And that is a rat race. That's a treadmill that never ends. Is it looking better? What is it? You'll never get there. There's only one that can give you the kind of security and peace and comfort the one who's actually faced hell and came out the other side of it so that you would never have to face it, so that you could actually have rest for your soul. Consider that as we feast together and that your feasts would be full of delight and enjoyment as you remember what God has done in the past and what he's doing in your life now and what he's doing in this community. And we have an opportunity to go through these battles together knowing that the ultimate, our older brother Jesus, has gone before us to punch Satan in the mouth and tell him no more. No more. Let's pray. Father, thank you for all that you've done, all that you're doing, and all that you will do. Um, In this moment, I pray that those who are having a hard time resting in their souls, um, and for whatever reason, that they would feel a freedom to come into the light and and describe that darkness to to people here. Um, Certainly need to have safe people around them. I I do, there's a lot of safe people in this place, and so help them to find those people, that you would would orchestrate that. Uh, We pray these things in Christ's name, amen.